Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. We're joined by one of my favorite people today. That's uh, Robert Temple. You might know him as the international bestseller of the book, The Serious Mystery. But today he is introducing a new book called A New Science of Heaven and the what he calls the fifth element, which is plasma. And, you know, we hear about plasma physics and, and the, the science around it, but Robert brings it to a whole new point of view and looks at it from a historical uh, perspective, as well as the possibility that plasma might have consciousness it might be what some of these unseen entities are, and it could also be part of the whole UFO question. And so this is a, an important book, and it's always fun to have him on the program. So I'm looking forward to that interview today. All this and more on Earth Ancients. Saturday, March 4th, 2023, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Hey, hey, welcome to Earth Ancients. I am your host, Cliff Dunning, and we are in the March. Can you believe it? We're in the March. Most of us in the United States are still dealing with really, really uh, intense winter Weather, temperatures, uncomfortable temperatures. And uh, here in California, we're getting wave after wave of uh, rainfall and heavy, heavy snow. And I'm here in Northern California. I'm here in San Francisco Bay Area. We have been getting slammed with, with rain. And I love it. And I haven't been able to say that until recently because we've had five plus years of drought. And uh, north of me here is the Napa Valley world-famous wine producers, and they've been screaming and digging and finding uh, wherever they can uh, sources of water. But in the last five months, let me see, October, November, December, January, February, uh, make that four months, California has been slammed with these uh, atmospheric rivers, they call them, where uh, we get torrential rain. Uh, like you get in the tropics, 
And it has been not only filling the reservoirs, but it is causing problems. Uh, uh, Southern California, L.A., San Diego, flooding, uh, loss of life. And it's unusual, you know. And uh, it's funny because we haven't heard a lot about global warming or atmospheric problems uh, associated with pollution and, and things like that. It's mostly just rejoicing <laughs> in the in the rainfall. But we're just, you know, one state, uh, the Midwest, the East Coast, tremendous cold, tremendous uh, weather problems. And for now, it's 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 uh, it's a it's discomfort. But for for me at least, it's dealing with cold, but knowing that you know it's it's in some ways it's positive because of the snowpack, which melts and turns into water, and the rain, and so forth and so on. So I have not been this cold. I mean, I've been very uncomfortably cold. It's been in the low 30s. What's freezing is 30 degrees. It's been very, very cold here, and it's been uncomfortable. So <laughs> you guys that live in sub-zero, I don't know how you do it. But uh, if, you're, if you're acclimated to it, so be it. Anyhow, weather, weather is weather, and we all live by it, and we uh, hopefully prosper when the weather is good and, and it's uh, helping us. So Anyhow, I hope you're doing okay. Lots to talk about this week on the program. One of the fascinating aspects of satellite photography is the fact, especially in the United States where it's distributed through NASA and Space Command and these other agencies, there's a lot of private agencies that are involved when they put these satellites together. And some of them get access to the footage. But for years now, a lot of the footage has been available, and I've reported on a handful of the real sharp uh, image specialists. We've had Dr. Mark Carlotta, who's a, a, a genius when it comes to image image clarification, image uh, uh, software. I mean, he wrote a lot of the programs that were used in some of these satellites. And also the fact that you know, he, he's one of these guys, uh, and we've had Mark on really consistently. In fact, he's going to be on in a few weeks to talk about some new research he's done. But when, when you have top guys like Mark Carlotto and you have other image specialists that are, that are saying, you know, there's something on Mars, people. It's not a trick of light. And I'm really tired of people like Jim Oberg for NASA saying, oh, you're crazy. It's a trick of light, a trick of light. These guys are just trying to squelch evidence, you know, and, and he's been around for decades. I'm surprised he's still alive, actually. But Jim Mulberg will pop up. He popped up recently in a um, posting I did on, on Facebook and said, well, you're just looking at images that are, uh, you know, tricks of light and reflections and stuff like that. Well, this week, a, a research investigator, a guy named uh, Gene Ward from South Africa, posted a series of images on a uh, unknown section of Mars. Well, it's known, but it's not typically imaged uh, to a great deal. And he came back with a series of images that he called the Lego blocks. I've posted some of these images on the Facebook page, Earth Ancients Facebook uh, group or international. And they really look like blocks, carved blocks, with the little protrusions that you find on Legos except these are megalithic blocks 
Uh, some of them are as big as a, a street block or bigger. And there's no way of knowing why they were cut this way and what they were, what the purpose was, how they were formed and, and whatever. But I had a chance to look at his website. And I got to tell you, this guy has really found some uh, amazing uh, artifacts on the planet Mars. Now, a lot of you guys and gals will write to me and go, Cliff, why are you bothering with Mars? Well, there's a lot of connections between Earth and Mars. There's a lot of mythological connections. There's also early research on Mars. There's been a lot of study, and it's always had anomalies, either light anomalies, uh, UFO anomalies, and uh, imaging anomalies, which is where I've kind of wondered why there's uh, not more outcry by the general public and getting NASA to, to come clean. Now, my guest today is Robert Temple, who is a, a, a scientist, but he also is somebody who understands these issues uh, regarding uh, images on the moon, on other planets, and specifically on Mars. And uh, today's program isn't about that, but uh, you'll hear him. We actually have a short uh, conversation regarding uh, the government's cover-up of, of these obvious uh, obvious uh, buildings. In some cases, it looks like uh, structures, tubing, uh, machinery, whatever, whatever. It's like you just cannot <laughs> cover this stuff up anymore. And so I'm going to have uh, Gene Ward, this image uh, specialist from South Africa, on the program but I want you to look not only at these Lego blocks, but of a very, very recent video he posted on YouTube that I'll post that shows what he believes a down aircraft. And at first I was kind of going, well, that's kind of iffy. But no, when you look at the, some of the, the length of the, of the crash site and then the end results, it's like it's pretty astounding. And you go to his website, and I'll post his website on the on the uh, Facebook page. He has page after page after page, and basically he goes back almost fifteen years of uh, image photos of Mars, and he he goes through one by one, <laughs> and he's just got tons of anomalies. I, I'm looking forward to having him on the program. In fact, I was thinking of making it just a short uh, segment of twenty thirty minutes, but. After looking at his website, I was astounded. So look forward to that. Now, the other news this week is that a corridor has been found in the upper section of the Great Pyramid, the Cheops Pyramid. Uh, we've known about this through the work of uh, Scan Pyramid, the group that uh, the consortium of French and Japanese scientists who scanned the pyramid back in 2017. And then six years later, the antiquities department decided to let people know exactly what they found. They stuck a camera in this area. They drilled a hole. They placed a, um, a microscopic uh, camera and they imaged this corridor. And it was been posted around the world just yesterday. And I want you to listen to this really short, and brief assessment of what they found. Let's have a quick listen. 
This morning, a new discovery inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. Behind these gigantic chevrons above the main entrance, for the first time, a look inside, a precise analysis, a real characterization of the North Face Corridor. This discovery, in my opinion, is the most important discovery on the 21st century. The towering structure has for centuries kept secrets out of reach of scientists and archaeologists. And now, for the first time, images showing a vaulted ceiling, a corridor measuring 30 feet with five chambers designed to release pressure. This corridor, it's uh, protecting or reducing the pressure on something beneath it. It might be chamber, might be something else. Very soon we can figure out what is the main issue of this uh, corridor. Inside the Great Pyramid, the possible tombs, the unknown artifacts, even the ancient construction techniques, it's all fascinated the world for the last 4,500 years. It's wonderful that we keep getting new developments and learn new things. Back in 2016, a cavity behind the North Face was first discovered. Scientists believed it was horizontal, and now they know it is, with perhaps a small upward slope. After seven years of exhaustive investigation, a true picture of what it looks like. Launched back in 2015, Scan Pyramids set out to penetrate the walls of this ancient pyramid without disrupting them. No drilling required, no excavations. Using advanced cosmic ray scans in the form of muons, scientists can peer behind the thick limestone walls with technology far more powerful than any X-ray. But this morning, the questions remain. What else is behind the North Face? What's below that corridor? What is it hiding? And one of the things that should be noted, and this is just an issue that a lot of people have come to realize, is that as a country, Egypt is really going through growing pains. And what that means is that this is something, this, in, this uh, discovery was made uh, approximately six years ago by the Scan Pyramid team. But uh, Egypt doesn't really like other people to, to make claims and, and make announcements. And so <laughs> I believe that they've waited purposefully uh, t- for this time and to, make, to be able to make the, the, the uh, announcement themselves. We run into the same problem when we look at the Grand Egyptian Museum, this $1 billion museum that's been delayed now going on five years. It was supposed to have—well, uh, no, I should say three years because it was— uh, it's supposed to have been uh, launched and opened in 2020. So what's that? It's three years. And it, it, there's delay after delay. We still don't know. We still don't know when it's going to be open. And this is just a problem. I have my own issues with the Antiquities Department in the fact that when you go to many of these temples uh, and you ask the guide uh, what kind of scanning has been done or ground penetrating radar. And they flat out say, we don't do that. We don't allow it. We don't do that. These buildings cry out for scans. They cry out for the most recent technology. And I I just find it fascinating that uh, here are the, uh, the keys to knowing about our past and we're held up by sluggish processes so that's as, that's as much as I'm going to say. But it's it's very frustrating because I've known about Sky Pyramid for a while. 
And uh, we're going to have some representatives from this the team that actually scanned the pyramid later in the year uh, to get some details that have not been provided to the general public. Now, they have their own issues uh, in signing a non-disclosure agreement, but you know things like uh, what part of the pyramid was scanned and uh, what this void could appear to be. Now, there's remember, Sky Pyra- uh, Scan Pyramid uh, discovered two voids. One is this corridor, and the other void is in the upper quadrant uh, above the king's chamber, uh, a, a void that looks like a chamber that is um, fairly significant, significant in size and shape. And the last we heard is that they were going to drill a hole and pass a drone self-propelled drone in there so they could image it. Well, that was all squashed and they were, uh, it was halted. And you you have to wonder, you know, why uh, in the midst of these discoveries, they're, they're halted like that. You know, is it, they're afraid of something being found. I have, I mean, I have tremendous uh, issues with this as you can hear. And um, so, and this is the same thing we run into in Mexico when we, we, we find these major discoveries, these LIDAR scans uh, that uncover uh, uh, whole cities with very unusual pyramids and very unusual buildings and very unusual structures. All of a sudden, the work gets halted because they're processing it, sluggishly processing how to announce it, how to go about dealing with it. And this is our, our dilemma we are in a fast-paced social media society, and we're at the mercy of this archaeological community, Egyptological community, that's in the Dark Ages. And they don't process in the same way, and they don't announce discoveries, and they don't announce finds and things like that. I mean, it's just, it just drives me nuts. So, And I go to these places all the time, and I talk to people, and, and um, I'm very gracious, and I meet with the... Uh, team members and the directors and so forth and so forth. But I'm like, come on, people, what the hell? (laughs) So anyhow, the program today is uh, real fun for me. It's Robert Temple. I am a huge fan of Robert Temple. His international bestseller was the serious mystery that came out. um, Oh my God. uh, 1977. I was a kid. And and by the way, uh, that's about the Dugan tribe of um, uh, Africa. I spoke to Robert the other day, and he's going to come back on this summer to talk about this book. We have not had him on, and uh, I've been trying for years to get him on the program. For some reason, we just our paths crossed, and he wasn't able to to join us. But um, so we got him on the program today. the The topic is plasma, and the title of this new book just came out. It's called A New Science of Heaven. And it has to do with what is called the fifth element, plasma. And what he has to say is somewhat fascinating and eye-opening. He goes all the way back to the uh, biblical characters and interpretations of plasma. And what I like about uh, Robert Temple is the fact that he is an admitted anomalous like I am. And though he's classically trained as a scientist, he steps out and looks at it and questions, questions the thinking, questions why uh, 
things are like they are. In the same vein that our good friend Dr. A.V. Loeb is uh, questioning so-called asteroids and considers a lot of them probes. So Temple asks us, actually in his press release, uh, here's what his press release has to say. Is the universe conscious? And how the new science of plasma physics sheds light on spiritual and otherworldly experiences. This is the program today. And the, again, the new book is A New Science of Heaven. And my guest today is Robert Temple. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Robert Temple's back in the scene again, a best-selling author of the serious mystery. He has written a new book called A New Science of Heaven, how the science of plasma will transform humanity's understanding of its place in the universe. I had a chance to look at it. It is quite in-depth, uh, and it is a, a look at something that science uh, – especially plasma scientists have understood. But of course, Robert, as a anomalist, as he likes to coin himself, has taken it to a new level and is revealing quite a profound look at a phenomenon uh, that is quite startling. Hey, Robert, welcome to Earth Ancients. Great to have you on the program. 
Thank you, Cliff. I'm very glad to be on Earth Ancients. You're an admirable chap, and you're doing wonderful stuff. <laughs> All right. What is the interest? What is your personal interest? I mean, this book is very complex. You 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 start from the almost the 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 first uh, descriptions of early. Uh, researchers and scientists, you'll go all the way back to Plato, to Socrates, to, to some of these very early uh, observers of phenomenon. What is your interest? Why should we be interested in, in plasma? Well, um, that, the answer to that is very simple. The universe is not made of atoms. It's made of plasma. It's 99.9% .9 plasma. <clears throat> Atoms only exist in occasional um, uh, dark corners of the universe known as planets, like our own. Our physical bodies are made of atoms, but you won't find many atoms out in space. Um, you'll find some, of course, but 99.9% .9 of what's in the universe is plasma. The sun is completely made of plasma. Lightning, which comes through our atmosphere, is plasma. Uh, all the stars in the universe are plasma. And what I'm particularly talking about in, in my new book, A New Science of Heaven, um, is that we, ha in, in order to understand the universe, which I call heaven, um, the heavens, we have to understand plasma because our, our physics here on earth is, is very good for the earth, but it, it isn't very good for the universe. Now, there are scientists at work here on the Earth trying to develop a science of plasma, um, but a lot of it's confidential because it's used in industry, it's used for trying to uh, contain fusion reactions for energy purposes, and it's used by the military, and you, they use it for making microchips and nanochips. So you can understand if you're running a, a microchip or a nanochip company and you have some angle on the plasma, you're not going to tell everybody because the other company will grab it. And and what they use the plasma for is to deposit the circuits onto these incredibly tiny things, these chips, which it can't be done in any other way. And the techniques of handling the plasma in order to do that are key to commercial success. So there's literally billions and billions of dollars worth of knowledge there that they have to keep proprietarial because their business is based on it. And certain countries can make chips properly using the plasma, and other countries don't have the knowledge or technique. Um, and, uh, and so it's become a matter nowadays with the uh, supply chain collapses um, where we're short of uh, energy and all that because of the warfare that's going on. Um, we, we have also a shortage of chips. So, for instance, if you have a modern automobile, which is pretty much a, an electronic spaceship these days uh, with a, a button and a switch for everything, um, if something breaks, you might have to wait six months to get a, a tiny microchip to go in there to fix that electronic bit, and it could even stop your car from working. Mm -hmm. So um, this whole business of microchips is part of the international uh, competition scene between countries, not just between companies, and that involves plasma. So that's one of the impediments to the public being uninformed about plasma, mm -hmm. because a lot of aspects 
the people who know it don't want the public to know. They don't want anybody to know. And there are other examples of that. So I say that we have to know about the general subject of plasma if we're going to understand the universe in which we're living. But it also affects us as people because I go further and I explain in great detail based upon scientific work in the labs um, that um, a certain type of plasma known as a dusty complex plasma that has to have dust in it uh, can e- evolve a consciousness or something similar to it. Let's call it AI. A- at least it would be intelligence. We don't know whether they would have feelings or not, but there must be entities throughout the universe made of dusty complex plasma who, who aren't living in bodies made of atoms uh, who are highly intelligent and our sun being a, an example. Um, so how does this relate to us? I believe that it's obvious that we are all bioplasma beings who temporarily incarnate into physical bodies for various reasons, such as learning about things, um, testing ourselves. It's like a training course. And, uh, and then when we do what's called dying, we don't cease to exist by any means. All those near death experience reports are true. Um, we certainly continue to exist and we merely revert back to the plasma state that we were in before we got ourselves born into a thesis. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You actually open the book and in uh, the first few chapters and start discussing the various science scientists, a Russian, uh, you mentioned a Japanese and of course American and British scientists that are actually looking at this from a cosmological point of view. And there's something called plasma wind, which is the space between earth and the sun. And this is a significant, um, discovery that's been known. It's the Koroleski cloud, I guess. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the importance of this cloud and how we're, we're you're actually, and you admit this, you're an anomalist. You, you study the, the undescribed and find unique aspects of, of, of science here. Why is the Koroleski cloud such an important uh, element? Oh, it's extremely important. Uh, but before I say what it is, I'll just say that what you mentioned just before that is known as the solar wind. And the entire solar system is like a vast but attenuated extension of the sun itself. Right. Because the solar system is completely full of a seething sea of plasma emitted by the sun. And so uh, we're, we're in a great big bubble full of plasma called the solar system. And it in turn is in a larger bubble uh, called the galaxy and so on. But to go back to the Kordaleski clouds, they're named after a Polish astronomer who in 1961 um, discovered, there are actually two of them, uh, discovered that there were these two gigantic clouds quite near the Earth. Um, and uh, they, they don't emit any light. They're very difficult to detect. You can more or less see through them. They're pretty much transparent. And um, he said they're there, and, and he they were named after him. He's Kordelevsky with a K, K-O-R-D-Y, Kordy, Levsky, uh, L-E-W-S-K-I, Kordelevsky. And um, the, um, the two clouds 
were at two positions between the Earth and the Moon, but not in direct line of sight, so that when you're looking at the Moon, you're not looking through one of the clouds, because they're at 60 degrees to the right and to the left. And these points between the Earth and the Moon are known as the Lagrange points, or the L points, where the gravity of the Moon and the gravity of the Earth cancel each other out and come to zero. So you can sit at one of these points, known as L4 and L5, um, and you won't be pulled to the Earth, you won't be pulled to the Moon, you can just sit there free of gravitational pull. And that's where these clouds are based. And so <clears throat> in the past, they used to be thought of as somewhere where we might have space stations or something because of the lack of gravitational stress. And there was even an L5 society that I was a member of long ago <clears throat> that wanted to put a space station there. And and um, my great friend, Jerry O'Neill, who wrote a book called The High Frontier, uh, was the greatest proponent of having a space station at L5 and had all the designs ready. Um, unfortunately, he died rather early from leukemia. And um, so his work was dropped. Now, Kordoleski's work was dropped because the, the communist government of Poland in 1961 didn't like it. And they told him he had to stop. He was forced to stop his research on these clouds. So I knew about these clouds, but, you know, I had despaired of anybody ever actually getting back onto proving them again. And um, because I'm on researchgate.net, which is a website where I put my technical papers, uh, I see other technical papers from other people, <clears throat> lots of thousands and thousands of them all over the world. And I discovered that a paper had been published about the Kordoleski clouds by a team of Hungarian observational astronomers who had verified their existence using more modern equipment than Kordoleski had available to him and um, absolutely proving that they were there. And, and so I, uh, I used the messaging system of ResearchGate to get in touch with the woman who was in charge of this team. And I asked her the key question, are you studying the plasma aspects of the clouds? because that's what I instantly realized was important. And she wrote back, apparently not knowing what I meant, she said, we're not studying plasma aspects, we're studying celestial mechanics aspects, mm. as an observational astronomer would do. She didn't seem to know what I meant at all. So I, I phoned up my friend, um, Professor Chandra Vikramasinghe, that's a long Sri Lankan name, he's a great friend of mine, um, who's a retired professor of astrophysics, and I said, Chandra, I told him about these clouds, which he hadn't heard of. Uh, we've got to do a paper together uh, talking about the importance of these clouds from the plasma perspective. And we did that for a journal called um, um, uh, Advances in Astrophysics. And that paper is reprinted at the end of my book as an appendix. Mm -hmm. So um, what this really means is as follows. These clouds are known to be each of them nine times the size of the Earth. So that's, together, they're 18 times the size of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, this means that the Earth-Moon system is no longer an Earth-Moon system. It's a two-cloud system with an Earth and a Moon thrown in. Because hmm. the Earth and the Moon are small compared to these gigantic clouds. So, okay, that's fine. What does it mean? I mean, are they just clouds of dust sitting there, you know, not doing anything. 
Well, this is where all my research into plasma physics came into play because I've basically included in my book uh, an easily digestible history of plasma physics. Plasma was first discovered in 1879, and it's been going from um, from then. And I, I talk about all the scientists who struggled because they were, none of them were believed. They were all ostracized and insulted and vilified because they were talking about plasma and people didn't like it. That is, the establishment scientists absolutely did not like it. And they... Um, until 1962, the establishment scientific view of outer space, as we then called it, was that it was completely empty, a perfect vacuum. Mm-hmm. You may remember that from your childhood. Yeah. And we were all told this, you know, it was like uh, biblical truth. It couldn't be questioned. Outer space is empty. You go out there and you've had it. You know, it's it's empty. It's a vacuum. Well, that's just not true. And so. A Swiss astronomer called Fritz Zwicky um, in the late 40s, who was an observational astronomer, discovered proof that um, outer space was not empty and tried to publish the results. And he tried for 10 years. He could not find a single journal anywhere in the world that would publish his paper because they, they knew, in quotes, that it couldn't be true. And so... After 10 years, he managed to get his paper published in uh, a biological journal, an astronomical article in a biological journal, just to get it in print in, in a peer-reviewed journal. Mm-hmm. And then he had off-prints, which he could send to all the astronomers by post, you see. They, then he could see that everybody could read it, but the, the, the establishment was trying to prevent anybody reading or seeing his results. So he broke through that barrier, and then by 1962, the American satellites started going up, and they came back with incontrovertible evidence that outer space is by no means empty. And then they were discovering the solar wind and so on. So Zwicky was proved right. But you see, uh, um, it was the head of his own observatory wrote to all the journals in the world and said, do not publish Fritz's paper. Hmm. For 10 years, they sat on it and tried to hush it up. So anybody who's interested in conspiracy theories has got a perfect example there. <laughs> well, it's the old boy group. You know, we don't want to change what we what we know. And if you have a new theory or something like that, it has to be approved by a committee of some kind, I guess. So yeah, Who's on those committees? <laughs> uh, I'm curious, you consider this plasma inorganic living matter in space that's what you actually write about yes and and this is what makes this a fantastic discovery and your book just a mind blower which is there's some form of intelligence that you speculate is embodied in this plasma can you talk a little bit about that because i want to carry that into a, a, the next segment which is uh, uh unseen uh entities, ghosts, uh, uh, perhaps what you call a fifth element dimension that is surrounding us and could be interacting with us on some level. We just are not aware of it. Is definitely interacting with us on many levels because we ourselves are plasma beings who are stuck in physical bodies and part of us is too big to squeeze in. And that's the auras that, that sensitive people say they can see sometimes around people's heads. And when we die, 
um, there are many accounts of of a, of a sort of uh, mist rising from the dead person, and that's what's floating up to the ceiling, and that's the plasma leaving the physical body behind. And we go back to our plasma state, where we don't have two legs and two arms, although we can look like we do if we want to. But the um, the thing about all this is that um, laboratory work by plasma scientists working on the very edge of plasma physics have proved conclusively that dusty complex plasmas, which are a special kind, and they have to have the dust, um, and they have to be what's called complex, which means they're described by nonlinear equations and so on. Um, they can, by a process which is now called emergence, uh, self-organize and eventually do go so far along the self-organization track that they can um, develop intelligence. Intelligence, at least of an AI type. It doesn't mean that they would necessarily have feelings. Um, they, they, they might not have any feelings at all, emotions, I mean, uh, but they would have fantastic intelligence. And when you've got these two clouds, if they're intelligent beings, which I believe that they are, um, and they're 19, 18 times the size of the Earth, the gigantic computing power there, and they're billions of years old, the, the, the computing power is so great that they would have the entire history of the Earth within them stored, and they would be monitoring everything, including this conversation, um, everything that everybody's doing everywhere on the planet in a way that all the spy agencies could only dream of in their wildest fantasies. Let me stop you real quickly. Is this related at all to the Akashic records that the mystics talk about, which is kind of like a cloud computing system? Yes. The Akashic records, as they've come to be called, would be in these clouds. Definitely. Wow. That's where they are. And we're looking for little green men in outer space on planets far, far away. We have extraterrestrial entities between us and the moon. We've got to get on this. This is amazing. I mean, you 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 actually uh, call them plasma people, and we we cannot see them because of a. I mean, how how, how do we recognize them? Is there a, is there a spectral analysis uh, equipment that we can see them with, or are, is it just too far in advance for us to look at on a? It's it's very very difficult to detect the clouds because they're made of. Um, you see, they, to us, because we're so small, they appear to be extremely diffuse Mm -hmm. and uh, as if there's nothing there. They're made of dust particles. Now, you can have 10,000 electrons cling on to each dust particle that have fantastic electromagnetic charge in these clouds. Incredible. But the particles are so small that they're 100 times smaller than the smallest particles which our satellites can presently detect. So if one of our satellites passed through them, they wouldn't detect those particles because they're just too small. They could detect fields, but I don't think anybody's got around to trying to do that yet. We 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 have to think very carefully. These are intelligent entities. They know all about us, and we know nothing about them. One thing we can be sure of is they're different from us. They don't think the same. They take a broader view. And and think at think like this: if you're an AI entity, or if you're if you're a highly compassionate entity, any kind of entity that has not lived in a physical body before, you don't know what thirst is. You don't know what hunger is. You don't know what physical pain is. 
because you've never experienced it. You can be told about it, but you have not subjectively undergone any of this. So these clouds may be rather impassive towards human suffering. They may be compassionate in the sense, as I believe they are, that they want us to succeed because I think that we are their experiment. They're really longing for us to succeed. If they weren't, they would have wiped us out long ago because they would have the power to do that. But the fact is, they must like us or we wouldn't still be here. So they've got to be positive. But that doesn't mean they're going to share our pain. This is so strange and wonderful. This reminds me of Wick Ramsey's uh, uh, theory on um, panspermia, where the belief is that there are clouds of, of microbes that are falling on Earth, and they interact with us on some level, and this forms some form of evolution because there's DNA and uh, and other components, microscopic components that fall on Earth. And I, I think the thinking is that it could be a extremely old race of beings that are sending this to us. But now, through this plasma cloud, it kind of, it kind of, it's kind of a, a, a complement to that theory, isn't it? Yes, I've I've been a joint author of at least twenty papers on pans, panspermia in scientific journals. I'm very much involved in it. I have been since the late seventies when I became friends with Fred Hoyle and, and Chandra Vikramasinghe, and um, and I I delivered the definitive paper on the prehistory of panspermia by going into the ancient cultures and what they thought. Um, and um, so I believe in that. But the are the clouds interacting with us? In many ways, yes. I believe that the glowing UFOs are little balls of plasma, similar to ball lightning. Um, and ball lightning, by the way, can pass through a solid wall and come out intact the other side, just like ghosts are said to do. Uh, I believe that they are that these glowing UFOs are plasmic drones, um, which are uh, in in a, a never-ending surveillance of of Earth, and that because the clouds have to send down drones to monitor us, just as uh, the Ukrainians are sending drones over the Russians at the moment to see where the troops are. Uh, the the clouds have to use drones, and and they are plasma balls. Highly structured inside, uh, dusty complex plasma balls. And I write a lot about that. I hold, have a whole chapter on ball lightning, yeah. which is a subject which has been studied a lot, but I take it further. Uh, really, this is just a never-ending subject. Isn't it? It's amazing. Um, let's go biblical for a minute. You have a, you spent a chapter plus on some of the key figures in the Bible. Uh, I call them biblical examples. Um, Let's talk about Enoch and uh, him working with what you call divine beings. Uh, it, it's a rudimentary description of this plasma phenomenon, but uh, you use it as a foundation for your theory. Talk a little bit about some of the biblical interactions with the plasma. Well, I start by talking about the, the burning bush of Moses. Because, the, uh, and I analyze the text uh, of that. There are variations in that text. Because remember, the, 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 the Old Testament of the Bible, which the, is called the Torah by the Jews, that's the first five books. Um, um, it's, uh, there are different versions because the original Hebrew text was uh, lost long ago. 
and has been reverse engineered from the Greek translation uh, uh, sponsored by the Ptolemies, known as the Septuagint. And um, and so there are certain linguistic variations. But what it says is that Moses went up on his mountain and uh, he saw this bush, what looked like a burning bush, but it was like a bush that was not consumed by the flames. It's a it's like a primitive person would try to describe a plasma ball. Mm-hmm. And and then he heard the, a voice from the bush. Now, most people think that it was God speaking to Moses from the burning bush, but that's actually not what the text says. The text says it was the angel of the Lord who was speaking to Moses from the burning bush. So um, what is the angel of the Lord? Um, not a lot of people have actually asked that question. They just say, oh, it's the angel of the Lord, whoever that is. But if you look into this question of who was the angel of the Lord, it's hard to find um, the answer to that in standard Jewish or Christian sources. But there is information about it from the Samaritan tradition. The Samaritans were a Jewish um, religious sect who lived in the north of what's modern-day Israel. um, And they were opposed to the um, Jerusalem Jews. Hmm. And they had a variation of Judaism of their own. And some of their texts survive. And um, among those texts, we find the name of the angel of the Lord, which we don't have from uh, standard sources. He was known as Metatron. That's what the Samaritans say his name was. Well, now, I thought, hmm, got to do a bit more research on Metatron. I mean, it sounds impressive. Yeah. Well, then I discovered, because I do a lot of reading of Gnostic Christianity and, and, and the origins of Christianity. I have a huge library on that, and I'm always reading that stuff. And so I discovered <clears throat> that one of the more obscure sects of the Gnostics, known as the Marcosians, unfortunately, none of their texts were found at Nag Hammadi, but there is information about them from the people called the Heresiologists. That's the the Orthodox Christians who were thundering against the heretics, especially one of them called Epiphanius. He preserves the information that the Marcosians claimed that there were two gigantic uh, entities, uh, you know, of immense size between the Earth and the Moon, hmm. who were the angels of the Lord. Get it? In other words, obviously they didn't have telescopes back then. I believe that a lot of the ancient wisdom was psychically perceived by inspiration. People were more open back then. There was less noise, and you didn't have your cell phone interrupting you every every five seconds. And there wasn't traffic and and all that. And you could go on your mountaintop. All the the shamans, they're always going to mountaintops or deserts or whatever. Get away from the noise. Right. Even the news then, in order to try to tune in to the higher entities, and so a lot of things which are now being verified by modern science at last were perceived in a psychic and rather vague way by our distant ancestors when they things were quieter and they were sitting and thinking about it, meditating or whatever you want to call it, and so. It's kind of eerie to think that what seems like a description of the Kordalevsky clouds go ba- goes back to a Gnostic sect of 2,000 years it's ago. It's amazing, yeah. 
Very, very and much that, so. And that it ties in with the story of the angel of the Lord in the Bible, and that um, it the angel of the Lord was speaking to Moses, not the Lord. This is key. And the angel of the Lord, according to the Samaritans, was Metatron, and according to the Marcosians, Metatron was this vast entity up in space between the Earth and the Moon. Figure it hmm. out. We're going to take a short commercial break to identify our sponsors, and we will be right back with Robert Temple discussing his new book, A New Science of Heaven. We'll be right back. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest today is author Robert Temple, whose new book is called A New Science of Heaven. And he's really helping us look at plasma in a completely different way. Was Moses intuiting what the angel said, or was there actual written language that came through in this uh, earlier text? It would be telepathically communicated. Okay. Um, it's well known that uh, telepathy, uh, ask any psychic, uh, is the way communication is done outside the physical body. Right, exactly. You bring up... Uh, a whole world of unseen but highly intelligent uh, entities, uh, Robert. You brought up uh, the UFOs as these uh, uh, these balls of, of light or ball lightning. Do you think that the, the this plasma entity, these would you call that a race of beings, has been with us since the very beginning? I think you 
you uh, and kind of give us a sense of that. But what's your feeling on because the 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 waves of UFOs that that are reported are not uh, analyzed and divulged publicly by our government, especially here in the United States. It's it's a complete joke and uh, uh, really not serving us well. But what do you feel about these entities interacting with us uh, and and their influence on us? Well, first of all, the governments. The government's jobs are to be scared. Um, the question of extraterrestrial life in general is what the security agencies call the number one security issue facing the world. And that is true. <clears throat> of course, they look at it from their typically paranoid perspective, but <laughs> then they can justify that by saying, oh, well, we're just being careful. Um, we're being scared because maybe we should be. And, and if they're friendly, well, that's terrific, but let's assume they're not. This is the way they think. And so the last thing they're going to do is um, tell the public because all those security people look upon themselves as elite. And we're the dumbos. Shut up and pay your taxes. And if you don't, we'll put you in jail. It's as straightforward as that. The public is actually uh, viewed with contempt by the people who run just about everything. Because mm -hmm. as soon as you're powerful and run something, you think you're superior. And it goes to your head and you become uh, an egotist. Then you turn into a megalomaniac like Putin in the end. And um, <clears throat> and then you want to conquer the world and run the world. And, and then you want to get rid of all the, the dumbos that, who are known as useless eaters. Did you know that you and I are useless eaters? I hadn't heard that term before. So we're, well, we're so ma consumers of mass quantities, I guess. Well, yeah, and there are genuinely in existence uh, weird psychopathic elitists who believe that the population of the Earth should be reduced. And um, that, um, it's frequently said by the conspiracy um, people that uh, the figure that they've settled on is 500 million. That's enough. And that means that several billion have got to go. And um, it's rather <laughs> uncomfortable because, you know, are they going after you? Are they going after me? Uh, or is it just people in Africa? You know, somebody's got to go, according to these people. And a lot of them are very powerful and think they're all powerful. And, of course, it's all self-defeating. And they're all fools. But they don't think so because they've got this inflated ego syndrome. And um, they're self-important, they're narcissistic, yeah. and they're psychotic. Psychotics don't have any feeling or ability to feel compassion for anyone else. That's the definition of psychosis. And and look at them; they're running everything. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get up. We don't want to upset our listeners here. So <laughs> Cliff, I can assure you that you're not one. <laughs> Oh, you may be running this show, but you're not a psychotic. I think uh, the definition of not being psychotic is uh, self-awareness, I hope. so. Uh, yes. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, you're stepping into uh, a whole different area. I mean, plasma physics, or excuse me, yeah, plasma physics is a unique science of uh you know they're 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 looking at it and but you're taking it and you're saying you're saying that and i i don't think the physicists are are 
looking at it like you or that are saying this is consciousness. Some of them have done. Um, uh, a, a small number of the most brilliant and most advanced plasma physicists have carried out experiments in the lab, which have proved on the smaller scale, of course, um, that uh, dusty complex plasmas can become intelligent. But what does that mean on a scale of intelligence? Is it, it intelligence that they, they are aware of themselves? How do yes. they, how do they measure this? This is my, my, my interest. Well, they haven't done enough to be able to measure and compare, and they're doing this at a small scale. But if oh. you imagine a cloud nine times the size of the Earth, intelligent, that's big, and um, and it's going to be capable of all sorts of things. And and I need to point out that the internal structure of these um, dusty complex plasma clouds is in- incredibly complex. Uh, so, for instance, a dusty complex plasma the size of you uh, would have a plasma interior structure more complicated than your physical anatomy inside you. Hmm. Uh, they're that complex. And so they have filaments through which current flows at uh, super uh, superconducting current. And the key to everything is the concept of plasmoids, uh, which were discovered um, um, by uh, a brilliant scientist called Winston Bostick. And, um, he uh, discovered that you can get blobs of plasma which are ordered and structured and remain separate entities which are surrounded by skins which he named sheaths so you can get um uh, these sort of um like bubbles or blobs of plasma if you look at the clouds they must have trillions upon trillions upon trillions of plasmoids inside them connected by fantastic maze of filaments looking a bit like the structure of the human brain or the structure of the cosmic web. All these filaments crisscrossing and the the blobs, the plasmoids are the nodes of these fantastically elaborate um, uh, electric networks of positive current and negative current. And uh, you can have a plasmoid that's got very cold plasma in it next to a plasmoid that's got very hot plasma in it, and they won't uh, affect each other because they're isolated by their sheaths. So you can have fantastic complexity inside these clouds, indescribable. Uh, and um, and yet to us at our small scale, because everything is on a scale, for us to pass through the cloud, it would appear to be nothing there. But if you're on the same size, the same scale as that cloud, it would be this huge, heaving, complex entity almost unbelievable uh, in its complexity. And um, it just seems diffuse to us. But, for instance, Eddington back in the 1920s, the the astronomer Eddington pointed out that atoms themselves are 99% empty space because the space between them. We know that. And so it's even more like empty space in a plasma cloud. But, you know, it's, it's, it's still a fantastic entity. And it's it's aware, and it's capable of communicating. It's capable of monitoring us, and and I believe that they've tried to communicate with us directly, but that we haven't noticed, because we're not looking for that. We're looking for little green men. How, how um, do you speculate they would communicate? Would they communicate by um, leaving some kind of rudimentary or maybe very highly sophisticated uh, uh, signals, or obviously? They don't have biology where they can speak, but how do they communicate? 
Well, I do believe that uh, messing with signals is definitely part of it. And, and, and I, I did write a section of my book about that, and it was taken up by the publishers. So I'll have to print that. It's quite <laughs> a, Yeah. Uh, that's pretty fundamental. I actually worked out how to communicate with them and how we can do that. But the other ways they do it is telepathically. Uh, they they uh, they give you inspiration in dreams or when you're when you're sitting quietly and thinking. Uh, a lot of the brilliant ideas that our top scientists have, uh, people like Einstein have said, you know, I, I had this idea. Uh, I, I woke up in the morning, I was half asleep, and suddenly this came to me. I think inspiration comes constantly from them, but you have to be receptive to it. If you're one of the, yeah, it, it's it's amazing what you're saying, Robert, because I've had numerous uh, scientists and and mystics and authors talking about these Akashic records. And to date, you're the first one who's addressing it differently. You have to meditate and then use some form of access point to get into this. And people are saying Tesla used it and other very brilliant scientists used it for inventions. But the average Joe doesn't really know how. Now, you're saying that this cloud is reaching out to us and actually influencing us, which is a completely different point of reference. I, I, I find it <laughs> quite fascinating. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be able to be able to reach out and influence the evil people. It's only the good people who get good vibes and can take them in because they're open to them. The struggle in the universe, I think, is between good and evil everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's certainly raging here on this planet. We don't know what's going to happen. The fact is that um, uh, if you look at humanity, we're such a mixture. We're fantastically brilliant and creative at music, at art, at literature, at, at philosophy. I mean, we're so talented. We're busting out all over with talent. And uh, we're so open to creativity and imagination. But that's only some of us. Then there are the destructive people, and all they want to do is kill everybody. Genocide, warfare, massacre, torture, murder. You know, who are these people? They are yeah. just serious weirdos. And um, what we have is the struggle to try to create a planet where the good people can be in charge for a change instead of all these psychos. But you see, the psychos, they are uh, control freaks. And the only thing they're living for is to control, control, control. They're maniacs. Uh, good people don't don't want to control anything. They just want to just be nice people. Uh, but um, and this is our disadvantage as good people that we're sitting ducks and suckers for these incredibly evil plotters and manipulators and schemers and murderers and torturers who have plagued the earth through its whole history. I mean, look at Genghis Khan, look at the Huns, um, look at Hitler, look at Stalin, look at Putin now. They're, yeah. they're doing it, they're doing it. Putin doesn't feel anything about bombing schools full of children, maternity wards, hospitals. He doesn't feel anything. Yeah. He's a complete and total psychopath. Wow. A real extreme version of one. But yeah. they're constantly being bred. And, and they're always seeking power. We ha and the reason why the United States Constitution was so good 
was because the, the founding fathers of the United States were well aware of how things can get out of control in the old countries. And so they constructed um, a system of checks and balances um, whereby um, nobody could become too powerful uh, in theory. So, for instance, if you get a president who's out of control, the, the Congress will stop him from doing going bonkers. Yeah. And then, and then the Supreme Court is supposed to say, no, wait a minute, you can't do that because it's against the Constitution. And this is all very carefully worked out. And, of course, the bad guys are constantly trying to break the Constitution, aren't they? Yeah. And they're saying, oh, no, 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 we... And they're constantly being dragged into the Supreme Court and made to obey the Constitution, but they don't like it. Because if they can just get away from those restrictions on their all-out power, it's like Hitler with his false flag attack. When he started the – he burnt down the parliament building in Germany, which was called the Reichstag, and he blamed it on the communists. Now, uh, he hated the communists and was always trying to kill them, and that was his thing that he wanted to do. But what he really wanted was total power. And so he, what he did was, he said, uh, I have to have complete tap power, unrestrained by parliament or any of anybody else, because there's a communist threat, you see. And it's the way to keep Germany safe. <laughs> so he was given complete control. And then he became the real Hitler. And yeah. it was on the basis of a false flag attack, which his, his own Nazis um, organized. In fact, it was Goebbels who originally thought of the idea, but that's another story. Talk a little bit about uh, a section in your book where you are addressing ghosts. And uh, I was reading when I was younger that some of the early uh, people like Blavatsky and Rudolf Steiner who would look at the other dimensions and, and uh, there were things like seances and uh, the, these plasma forms would be developed. Talk about that. And, and is that what we become? I think you mentioned that in the very beginning. We have this matrix of plasma so that when we leave our body, that's what we become is plasma, I guess, right? Yes, yes. We, we, we revert to plasma because we, it's inside us when we're physical the whole mm-hmm. time. But when our bodies wear out, I call them smart overcoats because overcoats wear out eventually. We have to leave them, and that's often a very sad thing for those left behind who suffer the grief of our absence. But the fact is that we are not at extinction at death. We don't cease to exist. We very much continue to exist. But then we revert to our normal plasma state in the, what you could call the plasma world, which is like a parallel world going alongside the physical world. So it surrounds us. It's all over around us. And to get back to actually a very strange comment that's a religious comment in the Bible, for those who who like biblical quotations, um, Jesus is recorded uh, as having been asked by his disciples, um, uh, they called him Master, Master, um, where is the kingdom of heaven? And his reply was intriguing. He said, the kingdom of heaven is all around you. You just can't see it. Hmm. That is fascinating. That's the truth. It's the truth. The book is called A New Science of Heaven. My guest today has been Robert Temple. 
Robert, talk a little bit about kind of a concluding thought on why this is an, I mean, I find it an important book. You have spent a tremendous amount of time kind of going historically through science, uh, uh, the Bible, some of the biblical characters, and, and, and you even touch on UFOs because of the great expansion of this phenomenon of plasma. But why, why should people purchase your book? Why, what, what is the, what's your core message, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Well, my book doesn't have a single competitor because it is the only book that tells you the truth about the universe. And I hope it will be followed by hundreds and thousands of others which do the same. But I am the first person to write such a book. And if you want to understand the truth about the universe, and I say this uh, without, uh, without any intention of boasting, I'm just saying it factually, you only have my book to turn to at the moment. Excellent. I have to ask you this, because we've had uh, people like Dr. A.V. Loeb and other uh, uh, astronomers who are actually very transparent in their thinking in terms of alien contact with Earthlings. Uh, my personal feeling is that once we realize that we're not the only beings in our universe or our cosmos, we automatically evolve because not only, we, we, obviously we, we know that we're not the only ones, but if we could be in contact with a, a, a race of beings that are a million or perhaps several million years in advance of us, we look at ourselves different. I'm curious uh, uh, what your feeling is. What happens when we begin to understand or we make a first contact? What, what, what's going to happen? Well, we don't know. <laughs> I'm just curious um, because, you know, this is this book kind of touches on that in some ways. Well, yes. Um, I, I, I often think about this. Um, uh, what's going to happen when everybody is forced to realize that all this is the case. And um, how will it affect us? And, of course, this is what all the governments are worried about. Um, you know, um, Orson Welles didn't do the world a favor with his War of the Worlds radio broadcast when people ran amok. And um, it's an old um, story that uh, people will go crazy when they realize there's life in the universe. I think that nobody thinks that any longer because we've had many decades of the public being conditioned by UFO stories that all the uh, public opinion surveys have shown that something like 75% of the population of the USA, as an example, believe that there is life in space. And only a nutcase would say that we're the only intelligent beings in the universe. I mean, such a person belongs in a padded cell in an asylum. Don't you think? <laughs> well, yeah, there are our, our government. I'm talking about the United States. That's where I'm in San Francisco, California. And I, I see the Space Command. I see NASA. I even see the European Space Agency adhering to this document that was written in 1960, the Brookings Institute document, that basically looks at our level of consciousness and says they're not ready to know if the uh, alien beings, they're not ready to know about UFOs. And one of my big contentions is that not only the moon, but Mars has great evidence for ruins of an ancient civilization. 
and there's a whole body of scientists that have validated that. And yet we're still told that there's nothing there uh, because governmentally they believe we're not ready. Well, um, of course, I disagree with those views, and I actually voted against them once. I'll tell you that it was in 1987. I, I, I used to be active in space things. And I organized a conference of the heads of international space agencies. And, um, I, I was connected with the International Astrophysical, um, Federation, uh, society. And, um, and so, um, I went to their international conference. It was held at Brighton in England in that year. Uh, and it, it was the night the great storm <laughs> hit the coast uh, of Brighton was the, eye of the storm strangely enough and um there was a a a small subgroup of the conference called um uh, that was dealing with extraterrestrial uh, contact Hmm. and it was dealing with the um um the reaction that should take place and they were they were they had drawn up an international uh treaty for uh, a, a protocol wow or what to do when uh, contact with an extraterrestrial civil- civilization is actually made and what would happen. And I didn't like it because um, it said that the public will not be informed. And I didn't approve of that. So then uh, they called for a vote. Now, there were only less than 30 people in the room. I was one of them. And I think... About five or six of us voted against, and the rest, it was carried by a substantial majority, who were all the people who agreed with this way of thinking. And so I then received further things, notifications by post, because I'd been one of the voters taking part in the future of humanity <laughs> without realizing it. And, um, of course, those of us who voted against it were not looked upon with favor. But um, uh, I know from that experience that the the governments of the world have already got more than one international treaty and the international organizations, NGOs and so on concerned with this have more many documents, all of them agreeing on the central point that the public will not be informed. Yeah. That's I can um, I can verify this. I was present, I was at the vote. I guess they just uh well I mean I kind of follow it a little bit. They they have theologians looking at the reaction of the public. And I, I find it crazy with the, the, the huge social media monster that's out there with Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and so forth. They don't ask any of the movers or shakers or what they call influencers about their perception on a first contact. And I feel to a person that they'd be, yes, we want to know more. Rather than trying to cover up uh, a first contact or evidence of an ancient uh, lost civilization, <laughs> I just think it's really ass backwards. And I use that language because our government, is, I'm talking about the United States, uh, NASA, uh, Space Command, and these other agencies are just out of touch. They're completely out of touch. Well, so and this is dangerous. Very dangerous. You see, we are not respected. We are just. Of the public, and they have almost all of the people running almost everything hate 
and despise the idiots known as the public. They wish we'd get out of the way and they could have the planet to themselves. And uh, of course, they'd still have their private jets and and do all those things. But we wouldn't be in the way. But they do need our money and they need our taxes to keep funding them. And they need us to keep buying their stuff. There is one exception to this amongst the high-tech billionaires, and that's Musk. Um, Elon Musk, it seems to be very different. Um, I was very, very thrilled at his reform of Twitter. And he exposed the fact that Twitter had just become an arm of the security agencies. I mean, it's incontrovertible from the Twitter files. They were running everything, deciding what could be posted and what couldn't be posted. Well, that's that's not free exchange of information for the public. That's controlled. It's propaganda. I don't approve that. And he needed us here, evidently. So that was good. But look at the other things he's doing. He's he's working on rockets, rockets to get to Mars. He owns another company, which is rarely mentioned, which is a tunnel uh, company. Yeah. Tunneling. Well, it's obvious that when settlements arrive on Mars, they're going to have to be onto the surface. So he's getting ready to tunnel for the... Um, habitations that he intends to see built when his rockets get us to Mars. It all fits when you put it together like that, what he's doing. He has a grand plan that people haven't put together. He's a sort of weird, very weird genius. Um, I I would say a super genius, but he's not like the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to mention uh, it's been great speaking with you. Much success on this new book, Robert. Uh, For those of you who want more information, you can uh, visit robert-temple.com, which I imagine is your website, and it sounds like you're fairly active on that site. Um, And uh, is there any any other social media sites you want to uh, promote uh, at this time? Uh, well, um, I, I'm not on Twitter or, or any of those things. Um, I have a Facebook page just where I put pictures of garden flowers mostly. <laughs> but, okay. But what, I, what I do to fight the negativity in the world is every day I put positive thought of the day. On your website? Yeah, I've been doing that for about three years. Okay. Excellent. A different, a different positive thought every day. Some very simple things like, or I pose a question like, why is it that rain falls in drops instead of just coming out like a bucket, you know? Yes. You know, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I want to mention to our listeners that uh, Robert, and I said this at the very beginning, wrote this mind-bending book, uh, God, it's a couple of decades ago, The Serious Mystery, about these uh, people, the Dogon tribe in uh, Africa. And Robert has agreed to come back and talk about that. And, uh, I really am looking forward to that. But uh, let's promote this uh, uh, new book, A New Science of Heaven. Here's the cover. There's the cover. And uh, and also, I've just published my first book of fiction, The Tree's Sadness and Other Strange Stories. Oh, um, okay. It's 55 really strange stories. And then anybody... You're saying did... fiction, though. You're making it sound like it's nonfiction. Is it fiction or nonfiction? It's fiction. Or... Oh, okay. All right. But strange fiction. And then uh, people interested in the Sphinx should get this because I've actually been inside the Sphinx, which has a um, 
uh, tunnel inside it. When did know? the Sphinx? When did that book come out? I'm, I must have it. I must consider it. Is well, that a- you can, it's still for sale on Amazon, and uh, it's called the Sphinx Mystery, and it was published in uh, 2009. And wow. my wife and I have done work uh, in Egypt, and, and I wrote this book, Egyptian Dawn, about the origins of ancient Egypt, which yeah. has not been published in America, but Sphinx Mystery has. Wonderful. And, uh, so um, there's all kind of stuff in there. I've written so many books. Uh, I can't remember them all. Great to have you on the program again. Much success, and uh, I look forward to having you back. Thanks, Cliff. I really enjoyed it. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I keep thinking when I speak to scientists like Robert, how refreshing he is and how I wish I had more uh, professors that had his openness. And if you don't know his background, he's a history and philosophy professor and also he's a fellow of the Royal uh, Astronomical Society and I didn't know, but he's been a member of the Egypt Exploration Society since the 1970s, and he's written a number of books on um, on Egypt. I'd be curious to know what he thinks about this new void that has been discovered and uh, how they will explain it if the, if it's filled with <laughs> books and, and and other information. So fun guy to to speak with. We're going to have him back in the summertime because I want you to hear his research, his story, his book, The Serious Mystery about this tribe. Laird Scranton kind of picked up years later and wrote fairly extensively about the Dugan or Dagon tribes of Africa and how this simple nomadic tribe has this uh, level of sophistication and knowledge of not only astronomy, but uh, s- certain types of mathematics. Fascinating topic. So great to have him on the program. Hey, we're doing a wonderful first-time tour to southern Mexico, November 10th through the 17th. This is our Maya of Tabasco and Chiapas tour, which is led by the uh, archaeologist Ed Barnhard, and I'm looking forward to it because not only are we going to see Palenque, but we're going to see a couple of other major, major Mayan 
uh, cities that are not off the beaten track. One of them we have to take a boat to because it's kind of an, on an island. And uh, this is uh, an active tour. This is not sitting in a car and driving by buildings. This is you walking among temples, walking among pyramids, walking about uh, among highly uh, geomagnetically uh, charged buildings that you can actually feel. You can feel the energy. We'll measure the energy. You can meditate. You can sit and, and think about it. <laughs> I love it. It's it's just the way to do a cleanse, to do a uh, uh, intervention, to do a uh, in, intention for plus minus activities. So this is Mexico, November 10th through the 17th. We meet in Verahamosa. For more information and to register, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours. You'll see all the information. We're about halfway full. We want to take about 25 or 30 people. I think our max is 30, uh, but we will see what happens. So, hey, come out and check it out. It's going to be real, real fun and uh, very, very much uh, an exploration, an exploratory tour. And uh, they're always fun. And everyone who who joins us always has a good time. So again, for more information and to register, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S. Hey, if you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you support the work we do here on Earth Ancients, on Destiny, and also Earth Ancients Special Edition, The Archives. It is takes a lot of resources, a lot of team effort uh, to, to pull these together, to edit them and to uh, launch them. And your support of $5, $10, even $20 a month is really, really helpful. To find out about uh, becoming a subscriber, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients. And you'll see all the details. Uh, you can just give us your ATM. It's automatically deducted. And uh, 5 10 15 even $20, like I said, is really, really helpful. And we got some gifts for you. We have um, probably, I think we're up to 30 new ebooks from uh, our authors. These are thank yous from our authors. We have some unpublished interviews and some galleries. Uh, but it's really a way to help these uh, podcasts stay alive, stay fresh and uh, and active to become a subscriber go to patreon.com forward slash earth ancients i want to mention that we are a sponsor of contact in the desert which is the largest new science future uh, expo of its kind in the continental u.s it's held in the palm desert june 2nd to the 4th of this year for more information, go to contactinthedesert.com. I mean, Graham's going to be there. Uh, a friend of mine from years ago, Linda Moulton Howe, you probably hear her on other uh, radio programs, but she'll be uh, one of our interviews, plus probably 10 or other people. We're going to do a Contact in the Desert series. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to basically sit with Graham for, for 90 minutes and, and uh, see what he's up to because he's been going through a lot. The archaeological community has been on his case because he's shaken it up. He's made them question their theories and the history. 
Of course, this is what all Earth Ancients is all about, questioning authority, questioning our, uh, our history, and really seeing what other evidence there is. So check out Contact in the Desert. If you can, come out and see us. We'll be there as a sponsor. It's a really fun show. It's held at a resort in Indian uh, Indian Wells, which is a, a small portion of uh, the Palm Desert, which is right next to Palm Springs. And you can either fly into Palm Springs or you can fly into L.A. Some of my friends and other people drive the hour and a half to the desert, and it is worth the, the trip. Hancock alone is fun to hear in a, uh, a conference setting. And one of the other things about Contact in the Desert is there's an outdoor uh, meet and greet area where you can sit and talk with the authors. They'll have their books there to sign. Very casual, very fun, and really worthwhile. In my estimation, is the best conference of its kind in the States, in the continental USA. So again, for more information and to register, go to contactinthedesert.com and uh, check it out. It's, it's just really a, a, an amazing program. All right, that's it for this program. I want to thank my guest today, Robert Temple, came to us from England. As always, the team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and everyone who makes this thing happen. You guys, you rock it. Rock it away. And I appreciate your help. All right, take care, be well, and we will talk to you next time. 